Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And she said, They have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Peter and the other disciples started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside, and he also noticed the linen wrappings lying there. While the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings, Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures that said, Jesus must rise from the dead. Then they went home. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she stooped and looked in. And she saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where Jesus' body had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. And she turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, Why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought it was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will go and get him. Mary, Jesus said, and she turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, which is Hebrew for teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father. But go and find my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. And she gave them his message. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The kids are invited to Children's Church with Emily and Kelly. I shall not die, but live, proclaimed the psalmist this morning. Are there any who are devout lovers of God? Let them enjoy this beautiful, bright festival. Are there any who are grateful servants? Let them enjoy and enter in the joy of their Lord. Are there any weary for with fasting? Let them now receive their wages. If any have told from the first hour, let now them receive their due reward. If any have come after the third hour, let them with gratitude join the feast. And he arrived that after the sixth hour, let him not doubt, for he too shall sustain no loss. 
If any delayed until the ninth hour, let him not hesitate, but let them come in too. And he arrived only at the eleventh hour. Let not, let not him be afraid for his reason of his delay. For the Lord is gracious and receives the last even as the first. He gives rest to him that comes at the eleventh hour as well as to him that toiled from the first. To this one he gives and upon another he bestows. He accepts the works as he greets the endeavor. The deed he honors and the attention he commends. Let us all now enter into the joy of the Lord. First and last alike receive your reward. Rich and poor rejoice together. Sober and slothful celebrate the day that you have kept the fast and that you have not. Rejoice for the table is richly laden. Feast royally on it. The calf is a fattened one. Let no one go away hungry. Partake all of the cup of faith. Enjoy now all the riches of his goodness. Hallelujah, Christ is risen. Indeed, hallelujah. This Easter Sunday, we come together to hear the good news, the announcement of the resurrection of what God has done in Christ Jesus in vindicating him from the dead. Every year I read from St. John's sermon, and that was just the first half. We'll leave, read the second half at the, um, last, at the end of the sermon. Um, but I love that introduction because what John in the 400 AD proclaims is that regardless of when you showed up, of how you made it here, of what went through coming here today, let us all rejoice. Let us all partake the feast. There is no first hour or last hour here. And if you're familiar with the, the Jesus' teaching, he combines together so many. The, the one at the end with the fattened calf. The idea that um, when the prodigal son returns home, will slay the fattened calf. And this is um, a preacher's joke I make every year, but it's this idea that most Easter sermons are bad mine included, which is why I cover it with St. John's from 400 AD, one of the greatest. His name is John Christendom, and it means the golden tongue. And so, of course, he's given a very good Easter sermon, and so I cover up my lackluster Easter sermon with his. But the reason I say that is because so often we turn towards, why is this believable? Or why you should care? Or why you should come? Or this is another tendency to go back to Good Friday, to say, hey, in case you're not aware, we're here because we're coming to a tomb. And then we go back into the Good Friday story. But the reason I say that I think mine and others lack is because what John does in his, St. John, uh, John, the writer of that sermon, um, is he just proclaims. Easter comes as news. It's not investigative reporting either. It's news that the, the grave has been broken. It's news that life reigns in the spot where death once lived. It's news that, that goodness has come forth in this day. In the language of John's gospel, it's news that the light um, shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. It's all that news, and so often, which I'm about to do, <laughs> is, is we'll go into the story, um, we'll try to make meaning out of it, but so often what that does is it dilutes the good news of hallelujah, Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Hallelujah. If that's true, um, everything changes. 
There's a theologian, N.T. Wright, who says, um, if Christ really rose from the dead, isn't the rest just rock and roll anyways? Um, so often I think Easter preaching fails to capture that good news that if Christ really rose from the dead, joy is the cause now. And yet we find ourselves here um, in this passage today from John's Gospel. We've been walking through John in this church, and we have copies of John available in the back too, just John, with some uh, place you can write some notes in it too if you don't have one. Um, but we've been walking through John's Gospel up until today and hearing his story of what it was like that Jesus was among his people, that he lived in this space, that he ministered in this way. And John's Gospel is unique in the sense in which it is... Um, told from the perspective, almost from the end to the front. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have the sense in which they're walking through the gospel, and you're waiting to understand what's going to happen, where in John's gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You already know who this one is from the beginning. And so John's able to open up different meaning within that. Now, it's worth noting that one of the odd things about John's gospel is uh, this race that takes place in the scene here. Now, many believe, and it's, it's almost uh, consensus, although it's not fact, that the beloved disciple is John. So he starts running before Peter, and, or Peter starts running first, and then he passes Peter, and then he gets to the tomb before Peter. And this, it's almost like you have to believe that he wrote this because Nobody else would make themselves look that much faster than Peter. Now, in tradition, one of the reasons that's in there is because Peter's considered older. Notice that detail is missing from this story. It's like he beats an old man at the race and writes it down for us to recite 2,000 years later, um, conveniently leaving that detail out. But that's where we find ourselves today in the midst of John's gospel. Flannery O'Connor, as I was, I saw this in the cover of a book this week, and I was thinking about Easter, is, has this idea that somewhere is better than anywhere. This is a story, or she's giving a lecture near the end of her life about what does it mean to um, inhabit a place and, and to write from that place. She was a, a, a part of the South, lived in the South. She called it Christ haunted in a way. Um, but what she says is it's better to write from somewhere than anywhere. But what struck out for me about this line as I saw it this week, and I couldn't remember where I saw it later, was that we can live our lives from anywhere. The internet makes it possible so that we can join someplace else and live our lives from different places. So many of us, my age and younger, let's say, have, have experienced the idea of that we are just avatars in this online world that we can sort of adopt personalities, present ourselves in different ways. I don't know if anybody's noticed this, but if you friend somebody on Facebook, you're invited into the halls of their own narcissism too. It's like now you get to see their photos and what they say. Uh, that's friending in the modern world. Um, it's one of the only reasons why I used to ask when I had Facebook is to, to see that. Um, that we have this ability to live our lives from anywhere. And what happens, I think, is I was reading um, a commentator, not a Christian, Freddie DeBoer this week. He was writing about how as he's grown older, um, he's begun to think less politically. He was a very political activist in his youth and wondering about how we're losing our humanity. 
The New York Times ran an interview with um, high school students this week, uh, just randomly, and, and so many of them were like, we like being online because we can disappear. We like being online because we can be whoever we want to be. And there were optimistic versions of it, but the saddest one was a kid who said, I like being online because I can mute myself. I like being online because I can mute myself. This, I think, is what happens when we can be anywhere instead of somewhere. We could be out there anywhere instead of in one place. And what he noted in his article was just how much today the message that if he were a parent, he's not, would be you are here. You are in this place. Every Easter it comes to me that we are here. That we've all gathered on this day. Full of belief, half belief, empty of belief in John's words. Wanting to believe more, wondering if belief more is possible. Yet we all come together this day into this place. You are here. And what Freddie goes on to say in his article is more a little bit about the truth of the world. You will suffer. There will be hard times. There will be joyous times. There will be life and there will be death. And so it is with this gospel reading today. It begins with this phrase. There's two ways we can read this phrase. The first is, while it was still dark. If you read that phrase just on itself, while it was still dark, implies that there may not be a day to come. This is where I think as we live into that, um, we can be anywhere or we can be somewhere. The anywhere sometimes can be all hope, but it's in denial of darkness. It can be all dark, but it suffers from the denial of light. But what John actually begins his account with, which is, I think, an even more uh, expanded phrase, is early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. It's the first day of the week, and it's a day which implies that dark moves today, that light is coming over the horizon, that life and light is coming into this place. It pushes back the temptation that it is always dark. It opens up the possibility that new day is about to dawn. And I always encourage us, if we can, to sometimes read the Gospels as slowly as possible. Early on the first day of the week. So much is wrapped into that. It's the day after the Sabbath in the Jewish calendar. It's this new dawn. John's gospel is full of these seven signs, seven days. On the eighth day, what does it mean that there's new creation abounding? What does it mean that new life is flooding into that place? There's this way in which this is expanded. And the place in which she goes, this tomb, is in a garden, calling to mind first that Genesis temptation, that we were placed in a garden to have communion with God where there was no death. And in this scene, resurrected life bursts forth and restores that. Jesus, before he was brought to the cross, is betrayed in a garden. 
bringing to mind our first sin as well. Yet here it is on an eighth day, all over again, we're back in a garden. Will Willimon, one of the more famous preachers, he, was, he preaches at Duke Divinity School, and one of the New Testament scholars came up to him one year, and he was like, I enjoy your preaching, but before you leave this job, will you preach on the meaning of Easter? It was after an Easter service. This is the news we all want to hear um, as we finish our sermons. Is You know, someday will you get to the point? Pray for me. Will said, do you, do you know I'm getting fired? Um, which is not what happened, but he was joking. But he said, uh, the New Testament scholar reminded him that it's um, reconciliation. It's forgiveness. It's the bringing back together of life. It's life conquering over death that happens on that day. So much of this is reconstituted relationships with Mary, the beloved disciple, and Peter, Thomas later in the evening in John's gospel, Peter on the seashore as they uh, um, bring in a fish harvest. So much of it is bringing back and restoring relationship, restoring humanity to what it should be. And I think that, going back to the article I started with, is, is the challenge today. It feels like our humanity is eroding. For instance, today's sermon was brought to you by ChatGP. I didn't write any of it. <laughs> so much of what we do can just be manufactured in those ways. And the saddest moment of that New York Times article was one of the AI optimists saying that it'll be wonderful when all our houses are screens and old people will have some sort of AI assistant that will come and keep them company. That may sound like good news to some people, but it's terrifying to me. And so this story, going early to the tomb on the first day of the week, is full of such reality. Jesus, in this, uh, or in this scene, she comes running after she sees the empty tomb. Um, the empty tomb has this way in which she sees that the stone is moved. Now, if you've ever been into a place that's been broken into, you notice that something's different when you enter your house, whether the window's broken, your car is broken. I don't know, when Rosie and I went down to a concert uh, in December, I left the window down um, all night in December in Denver. It was brilliant, but it felt like something had been moved. Something had been broken into. Who did this? I can explain what happened, but the point is, is that you notice something amiss, and it begins to set your mind to looking. It begins to set your mind to saying what happened. For me, it was like, where's the broken glass? It had just gone down. There was no broken glass. Um... But point being is that Mary sees something amiss, that the stone had been removed. And she goes to Simon Peter, and she says to him, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. The concern is that Jesus' body has been stolen, that they have taken him away from that. And even those closest to him, earlier in Jesus' gospel, he says, to them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. He's standing outside the temple in Jerusalem. And the disciples say, or John says, and the writer of Gospel of John says, is that later did we realize that he was talking about his body. 
They've forgotten all that he had said to them. And it's because they could only imagine life as more and more of the present. I think that's true of us, is that if we're going to say that we have hope, it just better be hope of more of what we have in the present. They've taken the Lord, and we don't know where they have put him. So begins the race. Peter starts. The other disciples started. They race to the tomb. And what happens is is that Peter, um, Simon, Peter, looks in first. And what he sees there is um, the strips of linen. Or no, the first disciple gets there first. He looks in, and he sees the strips of linen, but he did not go in. Simon Peter came along, bent over, and went straight into the tomb, which is if you read the Gospels often, Peter's the one who always just sort of busts through the door. Um, uh, goes into the tomb, no questions asked, and he saw the strips of linen there, as well as a cloth which had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separated from the linen. An odd stealing of a body. Normally when you would steal a body, you wouldn't leave behind its linens. Um, and there's a bit in which the Greek seems to allude to that the linens are in the shape of a body that was laid there. They're almost still um, in that form. So the question is, how did the body get out of the linens? But he, it says, looks and then turns away. He, he goes away without believing. Um, finally, the other disciple who had reached the term first, which is, he's just laying it on, like the other disciple who got there first, by the way, um, he saw, uh, also went inside, and he saw and believed. He looks at them, and he's brought to belief. And if you look at the, there's a couple different Greek words at play here, but Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw, which is a different Greek word than this one at the end here, that the stone had been removed from the entrance. The other disciple, he bends over, and he looks in at the strips of the linens, the other one, he saw the linen rising there, but this last one has this notion of that there's a believing into that comes with it. There's an understanding with seeing here. What I find amazing about the resurrections accounts is almost everybody looks, but not everybody believes. Everybody sees. Even in Matthew's gospel, when he's um, ascending into heaven, um, and he's blessing them in his bodily form. He's, it says that some who were there doubted. That's all to say is that those who want more faith, those who don't think they have faith enough, those whom are baffled by this day, it happened in the beginning. But he looks at them and believes. They did not understand the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. That was the psalmist for us today. I shall not die, but live. And the disciples went to the back to the tomb where they went back to where they were saying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb as she wept. She bent over and looked in the tomb, and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one at the foot. Um, the Ark of the Covenant has two angels on either side of it, um, that, that they're standing there in the place of where his body had laid. And Jesus, earlier in the gospel, he has said that I am, um, the word became flesh, which has this idea of which the word has tabernacled among you. The sacred has become among you. 
She looks and she sees them and they ask her, woman, why are you crying? The humanity of this story always strikes me. Woman, why are you crying? They have taken away my Lord, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned and saw Jesus standing there, but did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it? were looking for. Going back to that garden imagery, thinking he was the gardener, she said, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will go get him. What's interesting about this scene is that Mary thinks that we'll be better off if we have the body of the Lord. It's Gregory the Great writing in the second century who says, um, how much more we would weep if we had been given the body of the Lord. Still living within that confines in which death rules. But what happens is, is Jesus says to her her name, Mary. And like scales fall from her eyes. She turned and cried out in Arabic, Rabbani, which means teacher. The restoration of relationship here. Resurrection is the, is the proclamation of our relationships being restored. It happens in a garden. It happens all over again. Here she hears the voice. And it seems like in the Greek, it depends on what New Testament translation you have. Jesus said, do not hold me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. As if um, in the Greek, it seems like she has already grasped hold of him. And it's again, what seems to be happening, and this is so human of all of us, is that she grasped him to keep the relationship the same. But what John has been saying the whole time in his gospel is that he needs to ascend to heaven and he will send his spirit to us and that will guide us into all truth and life that that will give us the with God life to live in this world. Going back to the beginning, it is for Christians on this day and for Christians in this life to know that while it is still dark, we await that daylight that is coming. We have the first taste of that. A new kind of life is possible because of what God's Spirit does to us. Almost in, as I was thinking about the the shape of Jesus' body being there. This is not John's literature, but it is Paul's to say that the church is the body of Christ. The next scene, Jesus will tell Thomas, uh, blessed are those who have not seen, yet believe. Anywhere is better than somewhere. To be at the body of Christ on this day. Jesus said, do not hold me, for I have not yet ascended. And then go tell my brothers, which doesn't mean his literal brothers. What he means is that there is a new community of people, a new community of family that's been bounded together here, a new group of people. I am ascending to my Father and your God and to my God and to your God. I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. That Jesus here 
invites them into the same relationship that he had with the Father. So often he is teaching his disciples about the Father. It's only at this moment in the resurrected life that he says to them that this is the relationship you too will have. You will be brothers in this way, brothers and sisters and family in this way, and so too you will also have the relationship with the Father that I have. If you're familiar with Ruth, um, Ruth clings to Naomi, and she says, your God shall be my God, and your people shall be my people. Jesus proclaims that goodness to us. Mary went to the disciples and said, I have seen the Lord, and she turned to them and said these things to them. I have seen the Lord. That is the news we come together today to hear. Let no one grieve at his poverty, for the universal kingdom has been revealed. Let no one mourn that he has fallen again and forgiven, for forgiveness has risen from the grave. Let no one fear death, for the death of our Savior has set us free. He has endured it, he destroyed it by enduring it. He destroyed hell when he descended into it, he tasted it and into an uproar as it tasted its flesh. Isaiah foretold this when he said, You, O hell, have been troubled by encountering him below. Hell was in an uproar because it was done away with. It was an uproar because it was mocked. It was an uproar for it isn't destroyed. It was an uproar for it is annihilated. It is in an uproar for it has now been made captive. Hell took a body and discovered God. It took earth and encountered heaven. It took what it saw and was overcome by what it did not see. O death, where is thy sing? O hell, where is thy victory? Christ is risen, and you, O death, are annihilated. Christ is risen, and the evil ones are cast down. Christ is risen, and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen, and life is liberated. Christ is risen, and the tomb is emptied of its dead. For Christ, having been risen from the dead, is become the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. To him be the power and the glory forever. Amen. Hallelujah. Christ is risen. <laughs> Indeed. Hallelujah. Let us pray. God, you have guided us into the garden again. We look and long for the ways in which the world used to be. Nostalgia is strong for us. And yet we find as we look and see is that the tomb is empty, that life has been set free. And that for each of us, may we hear as we look in our tombs, as we look in our own places, they've taken the body of my Lord. May we hear our voices. That opens our eyes to see that he is the risen one who has conquered the grave. Send us forth as Easter people into your resurrection life. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.